Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Today's podcast, I really don't know what the actual topic is going to be at this point, but it's something that I just wanted to talk about in general, just about training horses and some of my thoughts on that and setting them up for success and kind of the general gist of all of the topics I discuss, I guess. We'll figure out what the topic is. By the time I finish this, I'll have a name for this and you'll know what this video is about. But these are stream of consciousness podcasts. So stream of podcastness, I guess you could say. Um, So yeah, who knows where we'll get because I just have a lot of thoughts and that's my thinking branches off of certain topics and thoughts and kind of spirals from there. So we'll just get into that. Uh, But first, I just wanted to let everyone know that I'm releasing a bunch of new riding apparel on the amoreequestrian.ca website, A-M-O-R-E, equestrian.ca. I'm releasing some more base layer colors for summer base layers, as well as some riding tights coming up in the near future and summer shirts coming out really soon, short sleeve riding shirts. Those will be up quite soon. I'll post about it on my pages as well once those are ready, but please check those out. I'm trying to move as much inventory as I can because I have a bunch of stuff that's now arriving that I would have placed orders for months ago, and I want to start moving inventory so that we can prepare for the potential high vet bills and definitive one, at least, for the MRI for Milo. Uh, So that's why I'm advertising and plugging my clothes so much. I also have the bridles on that website. There's still some sizes left. We're doing a restock soon. That has been delayed, as I've mentioned prior. Uh, That should be coming to us in the next couple weeks finally but yes it's been delayed i really want that here because yeah again products that i paid for but i need to get on the market to actually see income from so really want the restock just as badly as everyone else who has been waiting so i'll announce that and give everyone a heads up when it is in it's the largest restock that we've done so far so i'm hoping it won't sell out quite as quickly for everyone who's been waiting or that there'll be enough for most people to get them and that we won't sell out as quickly um, before the next restock So I'm hoping for that, but also just keep in mind for anyone that's listening to this and if you hear anyone complaining about my company, um, it's a small business. I pay for all of the inventory restocking by myself and even when you're only getting like 10 to 20 units per size, that's still like 150 plus bridles uh, for both styles and whatnot and that's very, very expensive for one person to pay, let alone me, a wee little bean who is new to the business realm. So that's why the restocks aren't huge. It's not because I'm trying to screw everyone or trying to create like false desperation by having them sell out quickly. It's because I can only afford to do smaller restockings and as the business grows, we'll be able to do larger ones. So if you haven't been able to get a bridle yet, just be patient uh, and watch my pages because I promise I'll give you a heads up when those are going to be arriving and we'll have a restock date so that people who want to get their orders in right away to guarantee that they get one can do so and yeah the apparel will be releasing soon i still have 10 percent off store-wide on both the amore website and my shop milestoneequestrian.com merch website if you use code milo at checkout you can get 10 percent off and that's just to kind of generate some more sales as we prep for his uh big upcoming vet bills uh so yeah i really appreciate all that you can also check on out my patreon at patreon.com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s that's the best place to go if you want hands-on training help and access to all of the different tutorials i do access to a facebook group to discuss and share your progress and ask questions live q a's behind the scenes stuff of what i'm doing with product development and whatnot the patrons are the first to see the new colors and all sorts of different stuff that i release it gets shared there so that they get to see the process of that in addition to getting training help and all that jazz depending on what 
tier you choose. You can start at just a dollar a month. And yeah, Patreon is super helpful because it helps me continue to develop the podcast and also put money towards the odd expenses like having my horse need a very expensive MRI. Uh, and it's also just a great place to go if you want training help. I do try to offer free help as well so that people can occasionally get that. But honestly, it's very time consuming. And I, I really appreciate people supporting me in exchange for that help because it's easier to just give it all in one place and put all those tutorials in one place where they are appreciated and then I get compensated better for my time. And I still think that we need free access to learning materials for anyone to learn from, which is why I still like to provide some free access, but for in-depth stuff that requires a lot of my time and for like hands-on training help and specific questions or video critiques, I have started to do the paid stuff now because I do think that what I offer is worth the money and I think that I already give a lot of stuff out for free so that's kind of why that difference has changed like I wasn't as comfortable charging for stuff before but I'm at the point now where I don't have the time to do everything for free and that I'm at the point in my career where I need to do some paid work so I hope people can understand it helps me build my business and kind of continue building and fighting the good fight in the horse world and doing the things that I want to do so I appreciate any and all support from that I also have a PayPal tip jar for people who want to support the podcast or Milo's uh, recovery and vet bills without doing like a monthly subscription and you can do that at paypal.me me paypal.me slash milestone equestrian all one word and yeah thank you so much I'll put those links also down in the description of this podcast and then we're just going to jump right into this so I wanted to talk about training horses first and I want to clarify that like training a horse doesn't mean you have to be a professional trainer. Anyone who handles an animal at any point, you're reinforcing and or correcting behaviors whether you realize it or not. You can even accidentally correct or punish behaviors. It can be something as simple as your horse takes off a little too long at a jump one time, you fall back and you pull on their mouth a little bit. That is a punishing type of thing. And if you repeatedly did it, it would change how your horse feels about jumping. Uh, similarly, if you are unconsciously doing certain things with your body that your horse learns to associate with things that are reinforcing, you can end up teaching your horse how to do things like mug you for treats without realizing that that's what you're reinforcing. So training occurs and learning occurs whether or not you are aware of it occurring. And the same applies to the learner, the horse. They might not always be conscious of what they are learning or what they are being trained to do because you can condition things in a natural environment for behaviors that they naturally offer as well and it can occur completely unconsciously and that is classical conditioning. Operant conditioning is um, where the horse will get like, they're, they're, you're soliciting their effort in training and linking certain stimulus to a certain reward and soliciting that behavior in there by shaping it solely towards the end goal of the behavior. So it requires active participation from the horse or whatever animal you're using it with. Whereas classical conditioning can just be linking a stimulus to a certain thing. So the best example of that and the most famous one is, Pavlo is the Pavlovian example where they rang a bell and uh, rang it at the same time that dog were offered food and it trains the dog to salivate at the sound of the bell because the bell predicted the food and that is what a clicker is you condition a clicker to be a rewarding sound by linking it to a very reinforcing reward and that is done without the awareness of the animal like they're not actively participating they're simply learning to link that sound to something pleasant because you're connecting those two things so it happens without their actual like hands-on participation if that makes sense that's a very watered down version and um since i do have adhd i lose my 
uh, stream of consciousness sometimes and I'm not the best at explaining things uh, if I don't write them down first. So that's going to be kind of your crash course on both those things. The most common form of training that you'll see in the horse world is operant conditioning and a lot of different types of training and training styles fall under that huge umbrella that is operant conditioning. Because uh, for example, traditional training, which is predominantly pressure and release, which is referred to as negative reinforcement in the scientific realm. Negative doesn't mean bad. When we're talking about operant conditioning terms, negative simply means the removal of a stimulus. So negative reinforcement is the removal of a stimulus to make a behavior more likely to reoccur and thereby reinforce it. And since you're removing a stimulus, it has to be something that the animal wants to get away from. It can't be something enjoyable, otherwise that would be negative punishment because removing something that they're seeking and that they want to have would not be reinforcing if you take it away because they want to have it, if that makes sense. So that is why negative reinforcement has to, by definition, be aversive. And that's because if it wasn't aversive and if it was something pleasant that the animal wanted to seek, it wouldn't be reinforcing to take it away. Um, and when I use the term aversive, that kind of sets a lot of people off. And it honestly used to set me off a lot as well. Uh, but when we're talking about aversive in the scientific realm and behavioral science realm, um, what, what that means is just like, my, it can be moderately, mildly to moderately to highly unpleasant. And it can also, it can be taken to such an extreme that it becomes punishing to the animal and highly stressful. Uh, but negative reinforcement, like let's use a human example. You're sitting with your back to someone and they tap you lightly on the shoulder until you turn around. You turn around to see what's going on and probably just to stop the stimulus because you're like, why are they doing that? And they get you to turn around. So you can teach people how to turn and respond to you from a tap uh, and it's because they generally just want that to stop. They don't actually like it happening and it, it gets their attention. They don't necessarily have to feel negatively towards that, but it's just something that they're like, oh, that's mildly irritating. Uh, let's see what I can do to avoid that. It doesn't have to be something horrendously painful or abusive and so on and so forth. So when people use the term aversive to describe negative reinforcement, that's just because of the actual behavioral science definition of how that works. It's not that people are labeling it as inherently abusive. Aversive and abusive are two very different things. Like, for example, going to school and working at work, working a nine to five can be aversive for a lot of people. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you absolutely hate your life at that job. Even with jobs you like, there's going to be days where that job feels aversive. Uh, and obviously comparing humans to humans to horses uh, isn't necessarily the most like realistic example and compared to like in comparison of their cognitive abilities but that's just kind of to try to help people level with this idea of what negative reinforcement is because a lot of people get really defensive when they hear it described as aversive but it has to be and the reason why I want to stress the fact that like something being reinforcing when taken away like, oh, sorry, taking something away and having it be reinforcing, what you're taking away has to be something that the animal is not seeking and doesn't want to have around consistently. It has to be something that they'd prefer to move away from. So that's why it cannot be not aversive and still be negative reinforcement because taking it away has to be the reinforcer. And you wouldn't be reinforcing a behavior if you're taking away something the animal likes. Like, for example, again, I'll use a human example so people can kind of feel it in their emotions and understand, like, how the horse may experience training. Uh, it's not to say that humans think the same way as horses. For example, you're in class and you're, or you're, you're at home, you're getting tutored. Your parents want you to focus harder on tutoring because you're looking around more. And to get you to focus harder, they take away your favorite pen or they take away the coffee that you've been drinking. 
you're not going to be more inclined to focus harder when they remove something that you like and that you want to use and that you want to have around. Uh, on the flip side, if you were given a treat for focusing, like a coffee, uh, Tim Hortons, like frappuccino, Starbucks, or some type of delicious thing or something that you like, even something like getting your nails done or getting your hair done or getting something paid for. If you're given something that you like, you're more inclined to actually do the thing that you're being told to do because you're receiving something that you like. Whereas if you, they took away something that you liked, that would feel punishing because it's something that you already previously had that was given to you that is now being taken away. And that is not reinforcing. So now, Positive in the behavioral science, like in operant conditioning, positive just refers to the addition of a stimulus. So negative is the removal of a stimulus, positive is the addition of a stimulus. Uh, and if negative and positive is confusing for you, think of it as subtractive and additive reinforcement or punishing because you're talking about adding or removing something. It's not actually talking about like the context in which the animal experiences it and you'll figure out why with this next talk about positive. So obviously positive reinforcement or R plus is the addition of a stimulus to reinforce the behavior. So in order for it to be reinforcing, the addition, the stimulus that you're adding to the equation has to be something that the animal likes and finds reinforcing that they want to seek. So in theory, like if you're, let's say you're using apples to reinforce, I personally wouldn't do this on a regular basis because they're typically way too exciting for horses and you can use lower value treats. Uh, but that aside, let's say you're using apples, but the horse that you're training does not like apples. Even though a lot of other horses like apples and some horses would love to work for apples, if the horse you're training does not like apples, it is not going to be reinforcing to add them to the equation. So positive reinforcement is also about finding what the animal finds reinforcing because just because one animal finds something reinforcing doesn't mean that the other is going to. They have their different tastes and they have their different preferences. With that said, any animal that eats food to sustain itself is going to be food motivated by default because they have to be, otherwise they would pass away. They have to be food motivated to seek food and stay healthy and take care of themselves in the way that they need to. So the idea that some animals aren't food motivated just isn't something that is well respected in the scientific realm. There's not really any evidence with it, and especially with horses being flight animals and shutting down portions of their systems like digestive systems and not using them properly when they're in a state of stress they will often stop eating and stop wanting to take food in highly stressful situations so a lot of the times that horses appear not to be food motivated are due to underlying causes be it ulcers or be it stress and so on and so forth like animals are food motivated. If they eat food, they're going to be food motivated in some capacity. It can just require some playing around to figure out why they're not accepting food and what they like. Um, now with punishers, positive punishment refers to the addition of a stimulus to decrease the instance of a behavior and make it less likely to reoccur. So positive again, it refers to the addition of a stimulus. Uh, so for a punisher, if you're adding something and you're trying to punish a behavior from happening, what you're adding cannot be reinforcing. It has to be punishing. It has to be something the animal finds unpleasant and does not want to seek because if it was something that they did like and they wanted to seek, it wouldn't be punishing. So positive punishment 
in theory to people with the word positive in front of it, if they're taking it as good or bad for positive and negative, it would mean good punishment, but that's not what it means because uh, as we discussed, positive just refers to the addition of something. Positive punishment is associated with the most behavioral fallout and problem behaviors across all species in terms of like these uh, operant conditioning quadrants. Positive punishment is the most risky one to repeatedly use. It often results in bonds being broken and relationships being fractured and stress behaviors and all sorts of different types of fallout and conflict behaviors in humans and other animals when repeatedly used. And it's something that's been pretty heavily studied in humans and all sorts of different animals. And this trend is very, very prevalent across all those different species. So it's safe to say that positive punishment is not the way to go as a repeated training mechanism because we know for a fact that it results in a lot of follow-up behaviors. But despite that, it is commonly used in the horse world, like very, very commonly so. It's very common to see people shanking their horses, hitting them with the end of the lead rope, smacking them with a whip. Uh, yelling at them can even be considered positive punishment if the horse finds it punishing enough. Uh, it just might not be as high punishment as like a physical hit or something that elicits higher levels of fear and dislike from the horse. Um, and yeah, like we, we have a lot of research on it across all different species. And since the trends are similar, that's why it's even more unbelievable to me how much people will defend this. Because if it was really a good and ethical training method, you would see some positives from it um, rather than so many follow-up behaviors and negatives. So this isn't to say that like you're a terrible person if you've ever used positive punishment, but it's something that we shouldn't really be adding into our training repertoire on a repeated basis. Like we shouldn't be using it in the name of training. Um, it can be hard to break the habit of going right to that, especially when you've been taught how to like that. That's the only way to handle behaviors like biting and so on and so forth because it becomes habitual and it being punishing. It doesn't even mean that you're laying into your horse to an abusive extent, like technically even flicking your horse's nose when they nip at you would be positive punishment because they don't like the flick. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to escalate to the point of immense cruelty. Uh, so it's very easy for people to downplay, but the detriments still apply. And if you repeatedly use it, those detriments become more prevalent and more likely because the problem with positive punishment, we've talked about this in other podcasts, um, but I'm assuming I have a lot of other listeners now. So I want to go over this before we get into the other stuff. Um, the problem with it is that it only seeks to mask the behavior, which is the symptom of an underlying motivation rather than actually dealing what causes the behavior. So the problem with this being such a prevalent type of training in the horse world is the fact that we're causing people to effectively mask communication from their animals. Uh, they've all, they've studied on all types of animals and it's shown that po like animals that are punished more heavily are less likely to engage in like trialing new behaviors and training to try to find the right answer because giving the wrong answer runs the risk of being punished. So it actually makes them harder to train. They typically don't learn as fast as animals trained with positive reinforcement. And it totally makes sense. Like if you got punished for saying certain things, and I know I did in elementary school, and it's been a lasting thing into my adulthood where I'm less comfortable putting my hand up in class and offering things or um, answering questions in general, unless I'm sure that I'm right about them. And this isn't as much of a problem for me in the horse realm of things because I've done a lot of studying and stuff and that was one of the safe places for me growing up as well. But at school and stuff, it was something that was so prevalent that I often wouldn't put my hand up in class and I would doubt myself and I wouldn't want to answer questions that I actually did know the answer of. And then when I found out that my answer is right, I'd always feel sad that I never put my hand up to answer them. And this was all because of teachers yelling 
yelling at me and it was like a lasting issue that has followed me into adulthood just from teachers making me feel humiliated at a young age um and that's something to consider is it can it can follow humans and animals for a very long time so this is why we don't really want to normalize the use of this as a frequent training method because it's not in the best interest of welfare. With that said, if you're in a situation where you're in danger and you need to immediately get an animal off of you, do what you have to do to get an animal off of you. Like I discussed this in our recent YouTube video on the Rich Strike situation, which for those of you who don't know, Rich Strike is the Kentucky Derby winner. There was some controversy because at the end of the race, uh, he had a bit of conflict with the outrider who was ponying him and he was trying to bite the outrider and the outrider's pony and actually did bite them pretty hard. There's photos of the marks and they're quite severe. Uh, so the outrider was like shanking him and getting mad and like the horse was upset and stressed right and rightfully so but um, people were slamming the outrider and saying he should lose his job over it when he was doing what he had to do to get the horse off of him and his pony. Um, and I would agree with other people that were saying like they shouldn't the horses shouldn't be in a position to be that stressed. I agree with that. I think we should address the underlying causes of the stress, but you can't really fault someone for addressing the behavior in that context and simply just trying to do what they need to do to get away from the behavior because that wasn't a training situation. So when you're thinking about use of punishment, differentiating between a training situation and a non-training situation is important. Like for example, if I was about to get run clear over by a horse and the only thing I had to protect me was a pitchfork, I would hold the pitchfork out sideways to try to create a barrier. And if the horse ran into it, it would probably be punishing. And it's not the nicest way of teaching them how to interact with people properly, but if it's between that and me getting run over, I'm going to pick safety in that instance because I can work on the behavior during a training situation. Or for example, if a horse is trying to like lunge at me aggressively and I'm in a place where I'm cornered and I can't duck out and there's no barrier system because I haven't been prepared for that, same thing. I'll do what I have to do to keep myself from getting murdered by a horse. But with that said, like my entire training process is to avoid situations like that by not having the horse go that far over threshold in the first place. So if I run myself into a situation where I'm in imminent danger, then I have to think about what caused me to be in that situation, what the underlying factors were, and try to handle it better next time because that is my job as the horse's trainer and advocate. And whether or not you're a professional trainer or not, you need to think of yourself as one of your horse's trainers and also their advocate. So you owe it to the horse to question why they engage in certain behaviors and try to get to the bottom of what happens just before they do it, what happens after, does it happen in certain situations, why is this happening, and kind of explore that because you're their advocate. And how they behave during training is a reflection of you as a trainer. So if a horse is always difficult to handle and you need to constantly be using harsh equipment to manage them, that's a reflection of you as a trainer. It's not the horse. And the problem with all a lot of these problems that make horses the most dangerous and make people the most most likely to use really punishing methods of training and types of training gadgets that use pain as a punisher to prevent animals from doing unwanted things. The problem with it is that the punishment actually increases the likelihood of these erratic, um, seemingly out of nowhere behaviors and stress behaviors and follow-up behaviors. And people use the unwanted behaviors as a reason to use more punishment, even though the punishment is likely a highly contributing factor to a lot of their problem behaviors. And also you have to factor in like management, pain, general stress level and all that stuff. Like it all contributes. There's so many different factors, but effectively masking communication from your horse and punishing them for communicating because you don't like what they're saying, that sets you up for 
failure because you're teaching them to hide their communication. So what this can ha what this can cause is for them to mask their behavior, mask their behavior, mask their behavior, and then suddenly explode out of nowhere when something finally sends them over the edge. And that's what makes horses so dangerous. Like a lot of the most dangerous horses are ones that are super shut down and they go into a frozen state where they're kind of going through the motions of what you're asking and then they seemingly blow up out of nowhere because they were never actually relaxed. They were just gagging their emotional response. Um, and internalizing it to avoid getting in trouble. And this is why we don't want to use frequent punishment. And also, I think that the problem with positive punishment is that it lets the trainer off the hook in a lot of ways because you're punishing the animal, which is assessing blame to the animal, whether you intend to do so or not. If you're punishing them, especially using physical discomfort, you're saying you are bad for this behavior, you're in trouble, I'm going to correct you for this behavior because it is bad. And that is pointing fingers. And it's assuming that the, in a lot of cases, it assumes that the animal did it maliciously or intentionally and then this results in people losing their patience and getting a lot more frustrated and that's where things can escalate to an extent where it is cruelty and that's the problem with this culture of punishment in the horse world like it escalates so far often because people are, are taught and consistently reinforced in punishing their horses and blaming their horses and assuming that their horses are doing things intentionally just to piss them off. And it's completely missing the mark on why behavior actually exists. And honestly, like, it makes everything so much more dangerous. I was always in the most danger when I was handling horses that were, first of all, in poor management situations, but secondly, punished often because they were the ones who behaved the, more, the most erratically because they had had their behavior affected gagged. So they'd be gagged in their response, gagged in their response, and they'd be offered no means of outlet for their stress or their discomfort, and they weren't taught like how, how they were actually supposed to act. So then when they were unsure and finally went over the threshold, then they act in a very dangerous, erratic way with less warning because they've been taught not to give any warnings, and they haven't been taught what the right thing to do is, and they're not being reinforced or rewarded when they are doing the right thing. So there's no real incentive to want to do the right thing or know what the right thing is other than being told what the wrong thing is. And can you imagine for yourself, like when you're learning and trying to learn new things, if you took a lesson with a trainer and all they did was yell at you about what you were doing wrong, but never told you what the right thing was, that would be extremely frustrating. And essentially that is what we do to horses on a massive scale. We just yell at them and punish them for what they're doing wrong. And we don't tell them what the right thing is. We just expect them to know the right thing. And if they've done the right thing a few things before or in a few times before or in other situations, situations, we assume that they know it and that when they make a mistake that they're doing it on purpose rather than for some other underlying reason. And also with this, a lot of people don't learn how to read the more subtle signs of stress because they're so common that they learn how to tune them out and they don't view it as actual stress. They just view it as the horse's normal expression and then they miss a lot of the subtle signs that would help them help their horse before things get out of control. Um, and like for me, like, I haven't, I haven't fallen off in quite some time now, um, but, like, most of my worst falls and injuries were off of horses that were, first of all, stalled for the vast majority of the day. Like, we're talking, like, 12 plus hours in a stall, um, in some cases, like, 20 plus, and horses who were punished and gagged for their emotional responses. So, the unfortunate thing is a lot of the horses who have, like, the most, like, chains, lip chains, 
harsh types of handling equipment like yeah any type like basically any type of handling equipment that you put on a horse that is hard to manage most of these horses are the ones that are in the worst management situations because they act super erratically when they finally do come out of their small enclosure because they have so much extra energy and stress and probably some physical issues going on that they become hard to manage and then people use equipment to gag their response which never actually effectively teaches them the skills that they need to handle the stress and learn how to de-escalate it and learn how to self-soothe and learn what the right thing to do is and what the person wants they're just being punished for doing the wrong thing or in perpetual discomfort in the owner's fear of them doing the wrong thing and this creates dangerous horses like we see like there's there's so many weird fixations that horse people have when it comes to safety in the horse world like yeah like always wearing a helmet which is obviously a good one um but like, all sorts of, like, yeah, always make sure you're, like, standing at the side of your horse, never stand in front of them, and all these things, and in theory, they're good ideas, but where it misses the mark and where it kind of bothers me is that they're not addressing what actually makes horses the most dangerous, which is their stress. So it doesn't really matter if you're wearing, like, a helmet, a body protector, and, like, literally, like, all the armor that you could find if the horse is so stressed and so pent up energy wise and so anxious that they're always going to be unpredictable and erratic and have big reactions to things it doesn't really matter how much safety equipment you use you're still putting yourself in an inherently more dangerous situation than someone who works with their horse using science-based methods is conscious of stress behaviors doesn't overuse punishment and does all these things and might not ride with a helmet um that's a hill that I'll kind of die on. Like, I, I'm very pro-helmet. I basically never get on a horse without a helmet. But sometimes when I'm playing with my horses, since they live at home, I'll sit on them in the field and stuff without a helmet on. But it's just for walking around. It's not for anything serious. And obviously, yes, that does come with a risk. But my horses have their needs met. They're out altogether. They're very quiet. Um, even after time off, they're the same because they have their needs met and they don't have the same high level of stress. So they're inherently less unpredictable to handle, which makes them safer. Would I ever, with a, like, in a million years, get on a racehorse without a helmet on? Hell no. Would I ever get on not like any of my client horses that are in for training without a helmet on? No. Would I ever break a horse without a helmet on? No. Um, all these things are like, yeah, so like it's kind of the risk assessment, but like horse people miss misrepresent like what the actual risk factors are because there's actually been quite a few studies done on like reactivity in horses and unpredictability in horses and contributing factors to like injuries to humans from horses and horses that are higher stress are way more likely to hurt people so I firmly believe that a lot of the injuries and stuff that we see in the horse world would be mitigated immensely if we adapted our horsemanship and started developing better training practices that are more horse forward thinking and like kinder to the horse more ethical more about actually communicating with the horse because a lot of riders like to think that they communicate with their horses but a lot of the training that they're taught to do is all about actively shutting down communication from the horse uh, which again is where punishment comes in and like even like unwanted behaviors under saddle and stuff like punishing the horse and not wanting them to do things like even if it's not what you want to hear what we need to start doing is accepting it as communication and it can be for a number of reasons it's not always going to be pain related it's not always going to be because you did something wrong to your horse it can literally just be that they spooked because they are a flight animal it doesn't always need to be some 
reason that that requires the owner or rider to immediately change what they do. But we need to view it as communication. Um, And even as a trainer, like there's instances where I have horses in training and we're working on things and I try to make things really quiet. If a horse explodes or has like I like for me, exploding is literally just like shooting forward and spooking away like if they do anything like that, it's a sign to me that I, I stepped a little too fast. Like, even if they just jump away from me when I'm desensitizing them to something, it's a sign to me that I stepped a little too fast. So then I need to go slower and I need to figure out the ways to make the horse less nervous of whatever I'm introducing them to. And I need to view that as feedback. And it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I can comfortably do that in most situations because it can be really frustrating to work with horses, especially when you're not sure where a behavior is coming from. It's way easier to blame the horse and project your insecurities and uncertainties onto the horse and take out your frustration on them and assume that they're just doing it to be bad. But it leads to more problems. It makes you less safe. And it doesn't help your horse at all learn how to navigate the human environment and learn what you want them to do. Like, horses don't view us as other horses. This has also been displayed in study. They don't view us as other horses. No matter how hard you try to mimic their behavior, they know we are not a horse. So trying to be like a horse and using that as a reason to justify punishment is flawed. They know we're not horses. Any punishment coming from us is going to be viewed exceptionally differently from a horse punishing another horse. And also with that in mind, in healthy horse herds that that they've again there's studies on this as well um horses typically just warn each other like distance increasing signals can be things that in theory look aggressive like pinning ears snaking their head kicking out but very rarely do these signals actually result in any connection it's usually just about increasing distance so they'll threaten to kick but they very rarely connect in a healthy environment where they aren't resource guarding and where they have their needs met and they're having enough food like they very rarely connect my horses play all the time in the field and they will bicker sometimes because Milo resource guards more than the other horses even when there's abundance of hay stations because of his past with starving. Um, And I've also noticed that when he's more uncomfortable physically, he's more likely to resource guard. So they do have moments where they're like, get away from me, I don't feel like spending time with you right now. But it is like basically unheard of to actually see instances where there's like a clear kick mark or an injury that has been sustained from another horse actually intentionally trying to harm the other and cause damage. Like, when they do get nicks and bites, it's from them playing because they're all boys and they like to climb each other and they like to play fight just like young human men typically do. Um, They're very similar. (laughs) Um... But distance increasing signals are typically what people see and view as aggression. So with that also in mind, like humans don't really give horses very many clear warnings before they punish. So that's also why it's unfair to compare us to other horses because horses typically try to live in harmony and they'll give each other a lot of warnings before they finally are like, okay, that's enough. I'm going to actually connect with you now. Um, So yeah, not only do they not view us as horses, but also like they don't punish as freely as humans do in training. And also with that in mind, even if they did view us as horses, we're not asking them to do horse specific behaviors. We're asking them to do some completely different things. So if they respond with confusion and respond in a way that we don't like, it also isn't very fair to punish them because they don't know what we want them to do. It's our job to show them what to do. That is our job as like horse handlers and riders is to guide the horse in their learning journey. It is not to make it a dictatorship, to make it so that they can't communicate with us and all that, those things, and then still try to claim that these horses like their jobs. Uh, and again, like this is something that I used to defend and I used to get sensitive about when people are saying the same things that I say now. Um, I used to get very defensive, but 
now, like, looking at it and, like, actually learning about learning theory and behavioral science, I'm kind of like, yeah, like, what incentive do a lot of horses have to actually like what they're doing when they're never rewarded for doing the right thing? All they're done is, like, punishment or the removal of something inherently aversive um, without without the necessary clarity for it. Because also, negative reinforcement requires way better timing than even positive reinforcement does. If the timing's even slightly off, it can be confusing and punishing to the horse. And most riders, even if they learn from the same instructors, their timing is going to be different. They're going to ride slightly different, so the aids are going to feel slightly different. So this requires horses to adapt in a whole lot of different scenarios or potentially become confused and punished, which is more of a reason, in my opinion, to reward them for things and to make training more engaging and fun. And I didn't like to hear that initially when people would say that because they'd say, like, what incentive do horses have to like their jobs? And I got offended because it's like a hill I'd die on. Like, horses love their jobs. They like working with us. Like, they like their people, this and that, and just wanting to defend it and being like, oh, yeah, you're being like a tree hugger, blah, blah, blah. Like, but like, yeah, we don't really give them an incentive to like it because we're not actually rewarding them for very much at all in the traditional realm of things. Uh, so this isn't to say that you need to become like a purely positive reinforcement person, but think about the fact that we're asking our horses to do lots of physical exercise and do things for us that are inherently unnatural. And if we're going to do that, we owe it to them to pay them in some capacity or at the bare minimum, allow them free communication with us. Uh, even if we don't like what they're saying, because it's our job to address why they are saying things we don't like. Like with our human friends, when they say we've hurt their feelings, we're not just like, oh, you're on your own. Or we don't just like slap them across the face and be like, no, bad don't tell me that I hurt your feelings. Shut up and don't say anything because most of us care about them and we want to communicate with them and we want things to be better. And most horse people do love and care about their horses and want their horse to be happy and want things to be better, but they've been so misled and taught completely incorrectly, like a lot of behavioral science and learning things and also things about equine behavior that have led them to hold these beliefs that have no real merit and just don't hold up in practice or in study. Uh, so it requires us to do a lot of self-reflection and really consider what we've learned and who taught it to us and whether or not there's inherent biases in what we've learned. And also just thinking about it from a logical standpoint, because most of us respond better to rewards-based systems than we do anything else as well, because it incentivizes us. Like, think about yourself with your job. Would you work your job if you were not being paid for it? Probably not. Like, I ride horses and I get to do what I love for a living, but I wouldn't work with client horses and do all my work for free what incentivizes me to do it is the pay, the reward. And I think that we owe that to our animals if we actually want them to be engaged in training and listening and want to train. And also with that, if we don't want them to be having a high instance of problem behaviors and unwanted behaviors and instances where they're showing us their displeasure, then we need to make things pleasant for them and we need to be considerate of them. The other thing that is a problem with traditional horse training in a lot of ways is that because it is so heavily punishing and about masking behaviors and forcing horses into doing what we want, we could miss out on a lot of communication that would help us diagnose horses with issues faster faster and help us address soundness issues faster and help us get to the bottom of potential health issues before they become a major problem. Uh, it can also help us get horses to their top performance if we take it as feedback because if they're having problems that are limiting their training and instead of just going, oh, let's try this new training gadget or this different training exercise um, that is about like forcing the horse to do what you want, instead of doing that, if you go, why are they doing this? This new behavior started, why are they doing this? Let's get to the bottom of this. 
you can improve your horse's trainability and also their athletic performance by mitigating what is causing them discomfort or displeasure or confusion. And communication and being listened to and the ability to, like, voice their opinion on something and have it be heard, that is very freeing to a lot of horses and it limits and reduces their stress immensely if their rider just listens to them and that is even without adding any rewards to the system. Even if you're just using a traditional pressure and release program, if your horse does something that you're unsure of or if they have a bad spook or if they buck or something, instead of getting mad at them and viewing it as intentional, if you just like take a moment and you're like, hey, it's okay, don't worry, you have no reason to be scared and instead of like chasing them over to the thing they're afraid of, you even if you get off and walk them on foot if they're more comfortable, just make it pleasant and rewarding and counter condition whatever is causing the fear by making it a rewarding place to be, then your horse goes, okay, like this is someone I can count on. This is my friend. When I'm scared, they're there for me. Instead of when I'm scared, they get mad at me and just force me to bottle up my emotions and work through it without listening to me. Not being able to communicate and feeling the need to internalize everything, even when it's like causing them immense emotional and physical discomfort, that makes training inherently no fun. And it also adds to all of their stress because they have no outlet for their behavior. And even as humans, like we get forced to do this to a certain degree where we're taught to mask certain emotions and not feel certain ways about things. And we're also indoctrinated into certain social concepts and stuff that are inherently damaging. And it causes a lot of problems. Like a lot of mental health issues are due to not being listened to, not having autonomy. A lot of trauma issues are the direct result of that as well. Like it, it's a thing that is seen across species. And being listened to and having autonomy is so reinforcing for every creature. So now that we have this information, I think we owe it to the animals to learn from it and use it to adapt our training programs. And it's all about developing a different mindset. So instead of being defensive right away, people need to be more open-minded to different ways of handling horses and actually hear people out. Because honestly, like, like I might be too far up my own ass with this, but like, I think that if more people who hate my stuff on like TikTok or Instagram or even YouTube, if they actually listened to more of my videos or actually listened to my podcasts and gave me the platform just to speak and gave it a, a try, like they, they just try to listen and hear where I'm coming from, I don't think they would be as reactionary because I don't think that it comes off as much of as much of an attack if they actually listen to where I'm coming from. But a lot of people don't give me the time of day or they'll watch like 30 seconds into like a 20 minute video or an hour long podcast and be offended by what they hear so immediately that they're not willing to hear anything else and they assume that they already know where I'm going with something when that's not the case. Because this isn't about insulting all traditional forms of training. It's about bettering the training to be safer and more harmonious for both horse and human. And that's not something we can do if one side of that relationship gets no ability to communicate and if the other side has like the monopoly on communication and can shut down any type of communication from the horse as they please. Even stuff like training gadgets like draw reins and stuff, it's about shutting down communication because you're taking away the horse's ability to 
carry themselves how they may be most comfortable or how they might understand to do at this point. You're using a leverage and pulley system to pull their head down and make them stay in a position that they may or may not be ready to carry. And that renders their ability to communicate a lot more useless. Like even if they need to toss their head for a fly or do something like that, when they're tied down like that, they don't have the same freedom to do so. So even the equipment we use, even if we're not using it consistently with the intention of punishing, it can be uncomfortable. It can be punishing and it can result in the horse having to mask and bottle up their behaviors. And a horse who's internalized everything and bottled everything up is so much more dangerous. I can't stress this enough. All of my worst injuries have come from these types of horses. All of the horses that are the most dangerous when they first come into training are ones who have been taught not to communicate and forced to internalize and bottle up all of their emotions. And then they don't know what to do. They expect people not to listen to them. They expect people not to communicate with them. So then they're perpetually frightened of everything because they feel like they have no one on their side and no one to look to for guidance. And it makes them insecure because they're they're essentially going out to battle with someone that they also view as like a predator because the person is the source of a lot of their emotional discomfort and anxiety. So it doesn't teach them the skills that they need to settle and do things in a safe manner. And I hate seeing both horses and humans get injured from this cycle that causes all of these problems. It, it's it's so sad because there's also horses that end up falling through the cracks because they have these stress behaviors that have been conditioned and created over time and con- consistently masked to the point where they beca- can become explosively dangerous and people will label them as dangerous and rightfully so because they are dangerous but the reason behind their danger is not just because they're a bad horse it's because they've had to mask their emotions for so long and they finally hit a wall where they're like I can't do this anymore so I'm just going to go balls to the wall and freak out until hopefully these people give up on me. And then those are the ones that you see going to auctions or just getting passed through hand after hand and never having issues addressed. And a lot of those horses also have underlying pain. Like, honestly, like a lot of horses that have intensive, like unwanted behaviors, uh, especially if there's not like a clear source of stress, like a clear trigger for it, a lot of them do have underlying discomfort or pain. And it doesn't have to be immense pain. It doesn't even have to be pain where it's like, oh, you need to go rehab this horse and rest it and you can't ride it right now. It can just be mild discomfort. It can even be muscular discomfort, tension from carrying themselves tensely and not relaxing under saddle their back being sore because they're not lifting it and the vertebrae are pressing closer together, their hooves being sore. It doesn't necessarily need to be stuff that's a major deal, but it could be stuff that is just there. And even if it's something that's minor that they could ignore in other instances, as the triggers start to stack, if there's already a base of uh, discomfort, the more triggers that stacks, the more likely they are to go over threshold because the chronic discomfort adds to that. And that could be the cause of a lot of behaviors. So it's something to consider because you can catch things sooner. And like, that's kind of one of my piss offs with like Milo is that if I was better at doing that and actually like addressing the source of behavior and hadn't been conditioned for so many years to not acknowledge the source and not be curious about why a behavior occurs or had so many trainers reinforcing the idea that he was just being silly, explosive and a stupid boy, then I would have been able to address a lot of his issues sooner. And a lot of them were directly related to anxiety, especially at shows because he'd be so much more explosive at shows because the environment would really trigger him. And I went the route of riding him through everything and just trying to work him through everything until he got tired. And honestly, like, yeah, sure, it works. Like, he'd settle eventually, but I'd have to be riding and hacking him around and doing stuff for, like, 
an hour or more, or he'd have to be at a show for like two days before he settled when I could have gotten off and gotten on the ground and actually conditioned the emotional response rather than just trying to condition the behavioral response and suppress the behavior because the behavior is coming out because of an underlying emotional response. So if I had addressed why he was anxious, it would have caused more lasting change in instances of high anxiety and given him the skill set that he needed to appropriately deal with that a lot faster than what happened. And instead, what I did is, like, take the long way and the hard way that is pretty reliant on just getting him to kind of be too tired to engage in problem behaviors and, yeah, ride him to the point of exhaustion um, and not really address the emotional response until, like, several years into owning him. And, yeah, it, it didn't work as fast. Like, I would have had a way easier time dealing with this horse and he would have been way less reactive than he was, especially as a baby if I had stopped and learned about, like, the underlying cause of behaviors, because, like, for most of his behaviors, I could recognize that they were coming from, like, a place of stress, but I didn't really understand the systematic approach of, like, conditioning that, like, counter-conditioning that emotional response and helping them relax from the ground, and I didn't personally think it was particularly successful because I'd never tried it, and no one that I had seen or respected in the horse world was doing it at that point, so I was really put off to it. But uh, I said this on, like, a YouTube live as well. Like, his bucking after fences and stuff, it, I can almost guarantee you it, it was due to sore feet. And if it was something that I had considered sooner and addressed sooner, it, we would have maybe got his hoof issues dealt with sooner, even with the lack of help that we had farrier-wise, because it was very hard to find farriers that actually addressed the cause. Uh, it was more about, again, masking the symptoms, which is discomfort when the shoes are off. And it's just, oh, this horse needs shoes. They need this, they need that, and not really addressing the pathology that led to his discomfort. Um, and we do the very same thing with training. It's all about masking, masking, masking. Uh, masking the horse's inability to round itself in its neck, masking the horse's lack of desire to settle and walk by putting on a harsher bit, masking the horse's rushing of fences by using harsher equipment. It's about all masking the behavior using different types of gadgets rather than approaching it using systematic exercises and training concepts that are about actually addressing the emotional response. It's about masking. And if we continue to mask things like this and continue to not care about the underlying causes, not only do we make our horses suffer welfare-wise, but we endanger everyone, all, all horse people. It is so much less safe. There is a better way of doing things. And it's not even about completely uprooting the way you train and manage your horses. It's about simply getting curious and viewing training sessions almost like a scavenger hunt where you're trying to figure out like what the cause of a certain behavior is or like a game of clue where you're trying to figure out hey in instead of a murderer you're saying hey what is the trigger for this or what are the triggers because there can be lots like I can literally watch other people's horses have triggers stack until they explode I'll tell you a story um at the racetrack last year I was just there to hang out and watch Janae pony some of the races and then watch some of the races and I was standing in the barn while the pony was getting tacked um and she doesn't own the pony so she has no control over his equipment or anything but they had hard tied him to a wall um with his like nose bent his tie down nylon nose bend from like a, a western tie down um and yeah he was just hard tied to a wall and I was watching him and he was stressed his head was up his eyes looked wide and like they always do because they're stalled 24 7 at the track so it's not like the most pleasant place to be so obviously all the horses are re more reactive but yeah his head was up he was sticking his nose up his eyes were wide and he was just very tense 
and I was watching him and I was like, oh my god, like, I really want to unclip him, but I didn't do it because I was like, if I unclip this horse and he pulls back and gets loose, people are going to freak out at me and I don't want to deal with that. So I had to sit there and bite my tongue and control my impulses despite desperately wanting to untie him. And they had this fan that, like, this standing fan that was blowing back and forth because it was at the, like, on, like, the back and forth setting where it moves. And every time the fan blew over him, he'd, like, tremble and just get even more tense. And I was like, oh my god, like, he is going to pull back and explode. And then finally the last trigger that made him go over threshold was someone picking up and moving the fan. And as they were moving it, they didn't watch one of the legs and it really lightly just like scraped past his hawk. And then he exploded and pulled back until he broke the tie down and thank God it broke. Cause otherwise he honestly would have pulled the, the whole stall wall down. And then people were like, Oh, like, wow, he did that out of nowhere. What a silly horse. And again, like it wasn't out of nowhere. I literally watched the triggers stack until he couldn't take it anymore. And this is the story for a lot of horses that are said to react out of nowhere. You can watch the triggers stack and you can watch their response to things. And yes, they're standing there for a lot of it. They're standing there not reacting, but you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their posture. Typically they are tense and they're not okay with it, but they are frozen. Like freeze response is a thing. And I don't know why people view standing still and not reacting as a sign of calmness in horses when they can recognize that as a a flight behavior, like a frozen fear behavior in other flight animals. Like, for example, like bunnies, when you're driving, or squirrels, like when you're driving and they're running across the road, they will stop in the middle of the road and freeze a lot of times. And then they might run back and forth and behave erratically because they're overcome with panic and they don't know what to do. But a freeze response is absolutely a regular response for a flight animal, and we see it a lot in horses, but people label the freeze response as relaxation a lot of times, and wrongly so. Like, your horse does not need to be freaking out to be terrified. Uh, and like, for those of you who are on my Patreon, I'm going to be doing a desensitization series with horses who are afraid. And the difference between my series and other people's is that you're not going to see horses running around wildly and freaking out unless I really screw up and take too far of a step in advance or some external trigger that I don't have control over causes them to go over threshold. You won't see that. And I don't want that to happen because desensitization should not look exciting if you're doing it properly. Like the animal should basically not be reacting at all if you're doing it properly. Um, um, but yeah, the difference between my series and other people's is that you're not going to see these big explosive reactions. Or if you do, what I'll say about them is like, yeah, I screwed up this time and I should have been able to avoid that. Next time I'm going to try to avoid that because that's not what I want. Like if a horse goes that far over threshold that they're reacting dangerously and fearfully, I have lost traction in my training program because I've caused them to be so frightened that they've reacted a big reaction. And then that gives them more incentive to be afraid of whatever I was working on them with before. So it sets me back. I don't want my training sessions to go that way. I view it as a mistake. I view it as a fault. I view it as a negative. Uh, in the not behavioral science way, like negative as in bad. I view it as a bad thing and it's not something that I seek to do. And if I do make that mistake, which obviously can happen because you don't have complete control over the environment, it can literally be something where you're working on something that the horse is afraid of and they're getting better at it, but they're still a little up and then a branch could break or something and then they could panic and have a flight response then. 
So you don't always have full control. Stuff can happen and horses can react. They are flight animals. This isn't about trying to create the absence of reactions, but it's about trying to set horses up for such success that they don't feel the need to react fearfully. So it's not about perfection, but it's also about holding yourself accountable and being aware of the fact that like you don't want high instances of fear in training. You want as little fear as possible. You want horses who are confident and look forward to training with you. You don't want them to be afraid of you. You don't want them to lose trust in you. You don't want them to be having such an unpleasant time in training that they're panicking the whole time. And that's the difference between how I do desensitization now versus how other trainers do it and how I would have used to do it because I would have done it in ways where I'm essentially chasing the horse with what they're afraid of as they trot or walk around and away from me. Like again, they don't have to be wildly panicking, but if you're continuing to approach an animal as they walk away from you with something that they're afraid of and you're doing so in a fairly like assertive or aggressive manner, that is frightening for them. They're trying to get away from the thing and you're following them with it while they're afraid of it, which is just reinforcing their reason to be afraid because the thing is chasing them and giving them a moment and letting them kind of decompress and watch things from a safe distance before bringing them slowly closer to them is a great way to desensitize because you can't reinforce fear like a horse being scared if you scratch it and you talk to it and take it away from the scary thing until it mellows out you're not reinforcing fear you can't reinforce an emotion um what reinforces they're like what reinforces the anxiety not even reinforces what causes the anxiety and the fear by chasing them with it or doing things that make it more scary to them, you are giving them a, more of a reason to be anxious and scared. So if anything, like eliciting fear in the first place and especially doing it repeatedly, all that is doing is teaching the animal that their fear is justified and that whatever they're afraid of is a potential threat. And that's not what we want to do. So desensitization is about going slow and it, it should look boring. It should look like the horse is never actually afraid of the thing if you do it right because you're not trying to chase them or get a big wild reaction. Like every trainer that posts these videos of quote unquote desensitization, I don't even want to call it that because desensitization is not like if you look up the term, the behavioral science term, it is not described as eliciting a fear response until the horse stops. That is actually flooding. What a lot of people call desensitization is flooding, where you're chasing an animal with a fear-provoking stimulus until they finally give up and stop reacting, but you never let up on the intensity of the scary thing. That is not desensitization. It is flooding. Look it up. Um, it's not It's not a, a debate. It's just a fact. Uh, if you're going to use behavioral science terms, use them correctly or be prepared to be corrected because because you're wrong. Anyways, desensitization is supposed to be done systematically. So in slow intervals, so as to not elicit high levels of fear. And it's about slowly pushing them out of their comfort zone. So at times when you're introducing the thing, especially when you move into like a slightly higher intense intensity interval, they might be slightly uncomfortable. They might be slightly on edge, but they should never be afraid or actively trying to escape you. Like good desensitization, you should be able to do at liberty without the horse attached to you because if you're doing it right, they're not trying to get away from you. And even if they do get away from you at liberty, they'll come back because you've not made it an unpleasant association. Um, so trainers that need horses to be attached to them on a line so that they can chase them and get stuff close to them, they are probably going over that horse's threshold of tolerance because otherwise they wouldn't need to have them on a line. And obviously some people do it for safety reasons and just training preference, but that line should be slack. Like if you're chasing them and they're running away from you, you are doing it wrong. Uh, and like I said, I'm doing a desensitization series for Patreon subscribers. It will be for the higher tiers, uh, for the training tiers. Um, but we're going to do like a bunch of different things. So I'm starting with like basic desensitization, like desensitizing horses to like a little flag, uh, sacking them out like with a tarp. 
Um, and then we'll start to do like hose, the hose, uh, fly spray and all that stuff and how I would work on it with that horses, with horses. Cause a lot of horses are afraid of those things and chasing with them, them with it doesn't work. Uh, and in cases where it may seem to work, you've created a freeze response where the animal is not really fully okay with it. You should be able to do these things at Liberty and it's not about horses always enjoying what you're doing to them because you can desensitize a horse to not be afraid of the fly spray or the hose but it doesn't always mean that they're going to enjoy being hosed we don't always enjoy putting on like sunscreen or doing things like that but we're aware of the fact that it's necessary where horses aren't necessarily aware of that so they might still find it unpleasant but you shouldn't be having to chase them down and scare them uh so that's the other huge problem in training is that people elicit high levels of stress in horses for no reason and they mislabel that as desensitization so people think that that is what desensitization is supposed to look like when really it's the opposite you're just flooding an animal to the point where they shut down and freeze up and that can create a huge problem down the road where if the horse ever wakes up out of that state or enough triggers stack then you get a huge explosive reaction and these are usually the horses that you get where they're technically broke you can like saddle them and people can ride them around walk truck canter even um but you can usually tell that they have had their communication gags because when you're saddling them they'll be really tense they'll be flinching and they might even flinch at riders getting on them and they're just not comfortable and those are the types of horses where they could go quite some time being completely fine and seemingly broke but then like all it takes is for like a branch to skirt over the top of their back or for enough triggers to stack and then they go on these crazy bronc fits again seemingly out of nowhere and the response will seem too severe for what the final trigger was because it's the result of chronic masking of emotions and chronic inability to communicate and just trigger stacking to such a point that the horse cannot gag their response anymore and they have to react and those horses are so dangerous so we really need to change our mindset and it's going to be for the positive because it'll cause people to enjoy their horses more their, the horses will enjoy their people more it'll render hard to catch horses a complete anomaly um, and horses will be waiting at the gates for their trainers and whatnot and their riders and actually wanting to engage in training because they are being listened to more. And it's not even about adopting a purely positive reinforcement program. Like people think that when I criticize traditional training that I'm saying the only way to train is positive reinforcement. That is not the case. I'm just really tired of what we see normalized as traditional training because it's often not good versions of negative reinforcement training. It's often very poorly applied negative reinforcement training. And it's often all about masking emotions and behaviors in the horse. So that's what frustrates me because I still do use negative reinforcement and uh, for horses that are in for regular training that are just here to get ridden that don't have any behavioral problems I would use intermittent rewards so it would be technically negative reinforcement with a cherry on top as coined by Shauna Karish uh, where you're just doing infrequent rewards just as like okay here you go here's a nice thing because that was a particularly good attempt but it's not using like a purely positive program where you're shaping the behavior using the rewards so the association of the behavior is still going to be from the standpoint of it being trained with an aversive. Uh, but that is still preferable to just having a punishing and pressure-based program that is high-stressed. So it's about making changes that better the welfare of your horse, even if they're not like huge 
insane awesome changes because obviously like with how the horse worlds run right now it can be very hard especially depending on where you live to find a completely positive program and also find people that will handle your horses in that way uh especially when you board and when you're looking for trainers so it's not always realistic and it's not always what people want but there's ways to be way more ethical and considerate of your horse even within a traditional program and even when using negative reinforcement um and again negative reinforcement itself is not bad but we've taught very poor timing we've taught an inability to understand and read equine behavior and stress and this results in it being misused and it it results in this being used to incite high levels of fear and stress in horses so it's not what we want like it, it needs some tweaking it needs some adapting it can be done better but it requires us setting a better example for what this form of training actually looks like and being less accepting of how many high levels of stress we like how many stress behaviors we see in horses and how normalized stress with horses is uh, because it's often mocked and made fun of in a lot of videos like Horse people will even laugh at horses who are showing stereotypic vices that are like a direct correlation of stress. So it can't even just be viewed as like an undersaddle quirk. Um, but we're taught not to actually recognize those things appropriately. And it makes it easier. To, it makes it easy to ignore all these things. And we aren't given the skills to properly address it. So it seems impossible. So when people suggest doing things a different way, horse people are inclined to just go, oh, that person's full of shit. They don't know what they're talking about. They've clearly never trained a horse. I've had so many people tell me, oh, you've clearly never trained a horse when I talk about behavioral science and talk about like literally anything in relation to what I've said here and so many other topics. And it's silly because they go straight to the ad hominem attacks. That is a sign that you don't know what you're talking about and that you have no real response. If you have to personally attack a person, you don't have a good response. Um, you're just lashing out like a trapped animal. Because uh, if you did have a good response, you could actually target their actual argument. And that aside, it's weird to me when people target me personally when I'm sharing information that was discovered and uh, researched by people more experienced than myself. You're shooting the messenger when you do that. It makes no sense. But people get defensive because they can't fathom a different way of doing things. So we need to start showing them the different way of doing things. And people need to at least be open to listening to differing opinions on things, uh, especially ones that are supported by evidence-based re evidence research. Because the average horse trainer has such an immense bias that will be leaned heavily in the direction towards whoever their idols are, whatever they were taught growing up in their de general training practice. They have a heavy, heavy bias. And there is not really any credentials out there that are actually about reinforcing science-based training and reinforcing the facts behind horse behavior and how they should be handled and things from a welfare standpoint. So trainers have a huge reason to be biased and they'll be biased without even realizing it because it is just so prevalent to hold completely disproven views in the horse world and people are very um, backed off to science. So it's kind of an echo chamber and it's really easy to get this reinforced and then those people will be spreading all that information to other human beings who are just taught to blindly believe it. So the way I see it is that you can trust and respect your, you, you can, okay, no, you can respect your trainer's opinion and you can trust them about a lot of things, but if they're saying stuff that is deliberately disagreed with by intensive peer-reviewed research, you should lean more heavily towards the side that has less of a reason to be biased, especially if there's very limited information on the side of your trainer to say that they're correct. Uh, for example, like people who board places where there's very little turnout, a lot of those people think that their horse is different and that the risks associated with stalling and the stress associated with being stalled too much doesn't apply to their horse. Uh, there's 
there's no real evidence that that is the case. So people doing that are choosing their own comfort um, and letting themselves off the hook uh, to just kind of at the expense of their horse. And it's not even about like necessarily having to change your horse's management environment because you might not have the option to do so in all areas. But if you're aware of the detriments and you're honest with yourself about these findings, then you can adapt the environment to the best of your ability with the resources you have to be more considerate of your horse or you'll at least be more understanding of why they are stressed. So that's kind of why it, it's frustrating for me to see people that are discrediting science and people that kind of like, there, there's this huge view that I've seen so many different horse people have where they'll be like, oh, well, like science, like you can't, you can't train a horse in a lab. Like, so they imply that equine scientists don't handle or train horses, which shows such a lack of, mis such a lack of understanding for how like research is actually developed and how these studies actually function. Because these training studies are conducted in barns and there's also a lot of studies that are even done on like upper level show horses. So it, it's not like they're just choosing like wild horses to go look at or looking at things in a lab situation. They're researching things in a real life situation and at shows and whatnot even. And they're also looking at how horses interact in normal healthy situations versus unhealthy ones. And they're compiling all this information. It's getting reviewed by other experienced people who are working to completely eliminate bias and they're doing it in real life situations. So the idea that equine scientists are just doing stuff in a lab is completely off base and I don't know where it comes from other than like my only guess is like first either cognitive dissonance or just complete ignorance and like not like a lack of awareness of how study and research works but in those cases I think people have a responsibility to actually look up what they're arguing against so that they know what they're talking about otherwise you're just trying to placate your insecurity with lies and that's not for the best interest of your horse. Like we owe it to our horses to at least be constantly looking for new information. And a lot of people take issue with how stubborn and set in my ways I am. And I get that because in the past I was stubborn and set in my ways in a lot of ways that were not healthy and were not backed by science and had no real merit. And it was more so me being like a barking chihuahua because I was like insecure and I wanted to defend the practices that I'd had normalized to me for over a decade. And it made me insecure when people criticize them, even if the the information they had had merit but now most of the views people take the most issue with are the most heavily researched ones that I hold and they have an issue with me refusing to back down and agree that they have an equal an equally valid point or refusing to acknowledge that their horse is somehow different than all other horses as depicted in study and they get defensive and then they get nasty when I refuse to back down and be like okay yeah you're right this doesn't apply to you because if there's no evidence that there is such nuance with like horses basic needs and how they respond to training then I'm not inclined to give people that free pass to completely deny and write off scientific information that they likely have barely even looked into and that they are, are only becoming reactionary to because of the fact that I've kind of thrown it in their face with whatever content I putting out um and yeah like you don't owe it to anyone to coddle their delusion if there is significant research showing things pointing in a certain direction and nothing on the opposing side or very little or not enough credibility on the opposing side until that opposing side is proven to be more valid there's no real reason to lean into believing that or if you choose to you cannot expect other people to agree with you because you're choosing the less research less logical side and denying science is like your choice but other people don't have to support you in it because like I don't know like I could decide that the sky is like 
green all the time and try to convince people that and it wouldn't make it true. I could convince myself of that maybe and I could argue it until I'm blue in the face, but it wouldn't make it true. And even if you can get people to buy into your delusion, it still doesn't make it true. Uh, being able to find other horse people that will agree with you on things doesn't make them healthy or fair to your horse. A lot of horse people will defend stalling horses 24-7 if they're expensive enough or if they have a job that they think, like, yeah, being in a stall keeps them cleaner, they don't want them getting sun bleach and so on and so forth. You can find a lot of people who will defend those practices. It doesn't change the detriments that are associated with them. It just means that you're finding people that are equally as committed to their cognitive dissonance as you. Uh, and again, like when I say these things, I'm literally shitting all over my old self. Like I'm criticizing my old self. It's not like I'm doing this to be like, oh, screw everyone else. I'm so much better than you. No, I'm not better than you. I used to do all of these same things that I'm criticizing now and I've grown from it and I want to talk about that journey and like how I've changed to show people that it is possible and if people choose to take what I say super personally then clearly they are recognizing those similarities within themselves and it makes them insecure that I no longer agree with what I used to do and that I'm taking issue with a bunch of practices that I used to freely engage in and then they frame it like it's a personal attack on them and a judgment on them and their care when really all it is is a sharing of information and me criticizing practices that I used to be guilty of myself and that I wish I changed sooner. Um, so yeah, like training should be about leading your horse to the right answer and helping them find it, not about pushing them around and limiting communication and punishing them and viewing their misbehavior as intentional. Like we need to stop all of that. Uh, it like we have the capacity to learn so much more than horses do. We have access to the internet. We have access to studies. We have access to lots and lots of information on horse behavior to learn about them and how to interact with them. Horses have none of that. They're forced to just exist in our environment and be punished if they make the wrong move. And they have way less resources behind them to change how they behave. Like, and we often don't provide them with enough resources to learn effectively uh, to how to interact with people. So since we have way more resources and we have bigger brains and more ability, the onus is on us to adapt our practices and become better. It's not on the horses. And holding horses to a higher degree of accountability than people is immensely unfair. And honestly, that is what a lot of people do. Whether they admit, admit to it or not, their actions reflect that the horses are held to a higher degree of accountability than they hold themselves to. Otherwise, we couldn't blame them so freely or justify punishing them as publicly or as harshly as what we see in the horse world on a very frequent basis. So, we, we've held horses to a higher standard than we've held ourselves and our own emotional patience and our own anxiety and our own tolerance and our own frustration for like centuries at this point. And it's like enough is enough. We have the research and the resources to do better now. So we really should. And it's never too late to do better. So even if you like you regret things that you've done or it's uncomfortable to think about how something may have neg negatively impacted your horse, it's never too late to change and even just learning a little bit and trying to better your practice where you can when you're able to, that's better than stagnating and doing nothing. Doing something wrong for a very long time is not a good excuse to keep doing it wrong and a lot of horse people will use that excuse because they'll be like, oh, I've done, I've had horses for 50 plus years, blah, 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 and try to use like their anecdotes as a reason to argue their way out of scientific evidence of poor welfare in horses and they're more... And they're more committed to arguing their right to continue doing something the wrong way than they are about 
looking at like, yeah, you've done this this way for however many years, but there's evidence that there's a better, kinder way of doing things. So don't you want the last years you have with horses to be the best ones where you can do better by them? Or don't you want to better the lives of the horses you have currently? Um, why not? You know, like we can do better. And like, if we start to adapt all these practices and training and like care practices, we'll see like soundness go up. Horses will be more sound. There'll be less injuries. They'll be more enjoyable in competition. They'll be easier to handle around the barn. They'll be less dangerous. Like there is so many positives to be had with changing the traditional mindset around horses and starting to modernize. It's going to impact everyone in a positive way, but mostly the horses, because the horses are the ones who have the most to lose and are forced to suffer the most and forced to hide how they really feel about things and deal with unfair management practices and situations where they aren't having their needs met and they're expected to not only deal with that, but they're expected to deal with it perfectly without any follow-up behaviors, without any quote-unquote disrespect to people. Uh, and it's not fair. Like, we put them in situations where they can't really have good mental health, and then we punish them for having behaviors that are evidence of poor mental health. And if we don't want to see these behaviors, it requires change from us. It's not fair to keep blaming the horse. There are ways to adapt management and training practices, even in this modern environment, to be the best interest of the horse, and that's something that I firmly believe in. So, that's kind of, yeah, a discussion on training horses and some of my thoughts on that and some of my frustrations, and I think that's it for now. Um, so, yeah, just remember that you are, whether or not you're a professional trainer, working with your horse in any capacity means that you are teaching them things and you're reinforcing things whether or not you realize it. So as your horse's advocate and teacher, just keep in mind that it's your job to lead them to the correct answer, not just punish them for the wrong ones, and that if your horse is having unwanted behaviors that you should view it as a reflection of yourself and your training program and look at what might be the underlying cause of these unwanted behaviors first because you can address them a lot easier and this isn't about having perfection horses will still spook they'll still have moments they'll still have days where they're more excitable and where they might have some silly or stressed behaviors you can't completely avoid it but it's about reducing the instance of these behaviors and also yeah addressing the underlying causes so that's just something to think about. Anyways, thank you all for listening, and I appreciate all the love and support of my podcast. It's always super fun seeing how many views and downloads these podcasts get, because it's, like, it's super humbling and surprising, honestly, because I know my podcast style is unconventional, but yeah, thank you, everybody, and yeah, don't forget to check out my merch store at shopmilestoneequestrian.com. You can get 10% off with code MILO at checkout, and you can also check out my new clothing releases at amoreequestrian.ca, A-M-O-R-E, equestrian.ca my products are under the milestone page and you can shop all those now uh there are going to be new apparel designs added soon i'll post about it on my instagram when they are released but keep your eyes peeled and check out our new base layer colors because there's some pretty cool ones and there's some pretty cool shirts coming out and then also the restock will be coming up soon so stay tuned on my pages because i will announce it there first thank you all so much for your support of my channels and my business and my products i really appreciate it and it yeah it's 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 awesome i'll keep everyone posted posted on Milo and how it goes with his MRI on June 6th. Um, I answered a question on my Instagram the other day and said it was June 3rd. That was a mistake. My boyfriend Jesse is getting shoulder surgery on June 3rd, so that's why I mixed up the date. He's going in on the 6th. Uh, so it's a little over a week away, so hopefully we'll have some answers then, and I hope that they're, yeah, not 
terrible and devastating. So uh, keep your thoughts with us. And yeah, those that, that that's how you can help us out. And if you're interested in seeing any of the future desensitization tutorials and other training help and stuff, I highly recommend joining the Patreon. Um, you can get like a like the lower tiers don't have access to all the tutorials, but they still do have some. And it starts at just a dollar a month to be a part of that. And then you'll have access to all the behind the scenes stuff as well and the ability to join live Q&As and ask questions and whatnot. And then the higher tiers, like the eight to ten dollars and above ones, have the most access to the training tutorials with the milestone student and um, those ones having the most, which are like twenty dollars plus, which is Canadian. So like if you're American, we're talking like seventeen dollars probably or less. Um, so yeah, like not not very expensive at all, and you can have access to all sorts of different things. And there's going to be lots of tutorials to come, and I also accept suggestions for tutorials that would you'd like to see, and they'll just be the more lengthy and in depth ones because. Uh, yeah, the pa patrons get access to more perks and um, it's just a better platform for sharing that type of information and also allowing people to ask questions after they watch it. So yeah, if you're looking for training help or advice and you want my opinions on things, I highly recommend that. The higher tiers also get my phone number and can text me about stuff or send in videos for video critiques. Uh, so all that stuff is great and um, I'm really appreciative of all the patrons that are already there uh, and thank you. There's going to be more tutorials coming. I just have to do the voiceovers for them so those will be up soon but I already have lots on teaching like beginner positive reinforcement stuff like target training teaching head away working with anxious horses teaching horses how to pick up their feet and all sorts of stuff already and then the desensitization series is going to add to that I do also have a video on desensitization already um, that is up but there's going to be a more in-depth one coming up that is going to target a bunch of different behaviors that people typically struggle with teaching horses uh, so that should be really good and I think that'll be a good resource for a lot of people to get some ideas on how to work on uh, fear in their horses. So anyways, thank you for watching. Check out the links in the description of this podcast if you don't want to type them into the search bar yourself. And as always, I appreciate it when people share the podcast, like the podcast, share any of my social pages, share the products, share product photos and stuff. All that stuff really helps and I really appreciate it. Um, so thank you again and I'll see you guys next time. We're going to be recording a podcast with Scott C from Mad Barn again soon. Uh, so that's really exciting. We're going to be talking about hay alternatives because we're having a hay shortage here. So I'm really excited about that because I want to learn about different types of forage that you can use in the absence of hay. So stay tuned for that one. That'll be coming up in the next few weeks uh, and that should be pretty exciting. So thanks again and have a great day everyone and happy training and working with your horses.